If you're like me, you use credit cards for everything. But did you know the average person misses out on $300 worth of rewards every year? Simply because they're not using the right cards. A new app called Birch helps you get the most out of your cards and earn the rewards you deserve. Just connect your debit and credit cards securely and Birch will actively track your rewards programs and show to you how to use them the right way, even in real time before you buy. It also analyzes your transactions and recommends cards that will earn you more based on the way you spend. Download Birch, B-I-R-C-H, in the App Store and sign up for free today. David, Axios' Jim Vandehei thinks people hate the media because cable news won't stop covering former Trump aide Sam Nunberg. But former CNN anchor Soledad O'Brien thinks America hates the media because Chris Saliza wrote some column on CNN. Is this why America hates the media? <laughs> no. I think at the moment America probably hates the media because the media keeps talking about how America hates them so much, right? <laughs> it's like a ba- it's like bad Borscht Belt comedy or something. It's yeah. just like, woe is me, okay? Take, take my media, <laughs> yeah. please. Yeah. Abs- no, that's totally true. And isn't it so clear that whenever we say this, first of all, we just pick an article we don't like, and then we yeah. say, that's why America hates the media, because of what you did, yeah. bad writer. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing is like, you know, if you're really mad at Trump, aren't you just mad at Trump? But then you just blame the media for Trump. Exactly. And if you're a Trump fan, you blame the liberal media for all the things you hate in the world. And yes. becomes the thing. And if you hate Trump and you also hate the media for not doing a good enough job of hating Trump and just your proxy, it's an easy target. What follows, David, will be 43 minutes in which to hate the media some more. This is the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to use the phrase, this is why America hates the media. (laughs) We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. If you want some recent content by us, check out David's most recent episode of The Masked Man Show, which features what, David? We talked about this great Cody Rhodes profile that I edited and The Ringer put up last week, who is uh, Cody's making his way, becoming the biggest wrestling star in the world, not employed by WWE. Mike Pellucci did a great job writing that. And uh, we got a lot of other cool wrestling content, like uh, Kenny Herzog's piece today about how Xavier Woods may or may not have had a spinal contusion on Sunday night. Wow. All right. What a sell. All right. Well, today's topics, David, three big ones for you. First of all, how did Trump's alleged affair with porn star Stormy Daniels become one of the stickiest news stories of this particular cycle. Sorry about that. Nice. Second New York Times columnist Farhad Manju unplugged from Twitter, only he didn't totally unplug. Controversy ensued and we debate. And finally, Michael and Jamel's 6 p.m. Sports Center came to an end. What is ESPN's nostalgia problem and how can they turn the tide? Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. Yeah. Good stuff this week. All right. But first, David, let's start here. Sometimes a story comes along that turns the entire Washington press corps into screaming hormonal teenage boys. Have you seen how many people have written the scene piece from Stormy Daniels' strip club in the last couple of weeks? Oh have you gosh. seen this? Yeah, I saw a couple of them. If, if you're a working member of the press and you haven't, you're listening to this pod right now and you haven't written a scener from Stormy Daniels' strip club, <laughs> just raise your hand right now. My old pal Denver Nix did it, Rolling Stone, Hadass Gold did it, and CNN.com. It's, it's really amazing. Anyway, two ways I want to talk about the story. First, Of all the scandals swirling around the Trump White House, why do you think this scandal Mm. has gotten so much traction? The pat answer, and and, you know, with with all things Trump, a lot of times the pat answer is the best answer, is that this is a case where he sort of met his match by by taking on somebody who has 
who's willing to fight as dirty as him or willing or has as little to lose as him or yes. I don't I don't I don't I don't want it to, to sound too dismissive but it's sort of like you remember back to all you remember all the Republican debates when the other candidates literally had no idea like what vocabulary was appropriate to deal to take you know to respond to Donald Trump and you and they you saw them sometimes literally flailing in front of the television cameras um I think now Trump has a has a kind of accidental adversary who sort of speaks his language. It's like the old Michelle Obama thing. They go low, we go high. Yeah. And Trump finally found somebody who went lower. Yeah. Or went to some place that he couldn't go. Sure. Right? Because they won't comment on this or, yeah. you know, they've denied the scandal. Mm-hmm. So to talk about it anymore. And I, I think that's right. And I also think Trump-like is the way her lawyer, Michael Avenatti, has played the media. Amazing stuff. To use the great phrase from the Penguin in Batman Returns, played it like a heart from hell. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? He's on cable news all the time. He is never, you cannot, you cannot, you, who could turn down an interview with this guy, right? Mm-hmm. But every time he comes on, he just has like a little tidbit, right? Just a little more. Maybe, you know, there was that thing of maybe there's some photos or other evidence that would, <laughs> that would confirm sure. the affair. Oh, I'm just going to say that out there. And then here he is on Anderson Cooper last week talking about an email Michael Cohen, who's Trump's personal attorney, sent using his Trump org email address. The initial email uh, in the string, which is at the bottom of the page, is an email exchange between a representative of First Republic Bank uh, to Mr. Cohen, alerting him to the fact that they have effectively carried out his wishes and transferred money from one account at First Republic to a checking account at First Republic. He turns around then and forwards that email to himself. To his so that, and so that email from the bank was sent to his Trump Organization email account. Absolutely. And, and your viewers can see it on the screen. He then turns around and forwards that to his personal email account, which is the next email in the string. Uh, above that, what's being shown on the screen right now. So, so that that's being shown on the screen um, basically says that the money is in the account. Correct. It's from the uh, bank employee to... Mr. Cohen. And why would Michael Cohen then feel the need to forward that email to himself, to his private email address, to then communicate with Stormy Daniels' attorney? I don't have an explanation for it, quite honestly, because if there was nothing to hide in connection with this email string, then then Mr. Cohen could have forwarded this email uh, directly to Mr. Davidson and would not have had to take the interim step of going to his personal email account. What we believe happened, uh, and, and this is speculation, but I think it's pretty good speculation, is that he sent it to his personal email address. He was then going to send it from his personal email address to Mr. Davidson, but he forgot to delete the middle portion of the email that showed that the communication had taken place with his email at the Trump Organization. And then I also loved him. Here he is. This is Avenatti clambering up to the moral high ground in the New York Times. We're going to consistently advocate for the American people being able to make their own decisions as to who's telling the truth and who's lying to them. She wants a forum to tell her version of events and let the chips fall where they may. Truly an American appeal, right? Yeah. It's just free speech we're talking about here. <laughs> why can't why can't this woman tell her story? It's masterful. Um the thing that this reminds me of is uh, we talked about this some time ago on the show uh, it was Michael Wolf when his book Fire and Fury came out, because weirdly, it seems like, you know, maybe it just fizzled out because the news cycle moves so quickly now. But it did seem to me that sort of what the, the downfall of the Michael Wolf PR tour, at, at least, 
was when he started like insinuating that there was more stuff. You know, he started like <laughs> yes. quote unquote leaking the tell. If you read between the lines, you'll see this, you'll see this. Nikki Haley and, and us, yeah. And the media who had embraced him, you know, so so eagerly at the beginning sort of had to fall back on the principal stand of okay, he's just playing us now or he's just he, he's 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 you know violating whatever bond that the you know the journal of journalistic integrity that we share. Um, and you also see the media, you know, deal with this with Trump that they don't know how to Trump himself, that when he's, you know, uh, less than truthful or when he's I mean, obviously there's the Chuck Todd thing this weekend. But when he's, you know, crass, the press doesn't know quite what to do with it. And so he, he ends up getting sort of a pass on it. Um, yeah. Now with Stormy Daniels and her attorney, we have another we have there's no journalistic integrity. You know, there's nothing. And this is just pure media spectacle. And just like Trump was able to get over doing that, uh, the, the, you know, hit now now uh, Ms. Daniels is able to to do the same thing. Yeah, it's true. When he insults Chuck Todd, you know, we're left with Tom Brokaw kind of, you know, shaking his head wearily. Oh, you know, this disgrace to the American to the American presidency. <laughs> great impression. But with this, it's weirdly because they they haven't other than to deny it, they have barely touched the story. Right. Uh-huh. Left to Michael Cohen to defend himself. Now, to back up for people who don't know, allegedly. Trump had an affair with this woman. Mm-hmm. Michael Cohen paid $130,000 to secure her silence in what's being called a hush agreement, mm-hmm. right? Cohen is claiming he did this out of his own goodwill to Trump. But this, still denying that the affair took place. Right, that's the weird, right, that's exactly, the weird yeah, right. second, well, second rail of this. I don't exactly. Know. But but it, Trump did not, you know, pay him to pay the woman. He, he paid her off. And then there's all this... All these kind of little small things within that. I think the other amazing part of the story is it's an unusual scandal in that we know what happened, allegedly, between mm-hmm. the two of them. But there's also this mystery, right? She can't tell her story. She is prevented. And if only she could get out of this agreement or we could get the agreement invalidated because Trump didn't sign it, right? right? As they've been saying on television. So it's actually we know the answer to the riddle, but then there's still the riddle, Right. Right. It's really funny. It's I mean, the the legal maneuvering on the I mean, by the Daniels camp is, like you said, been really been really smart. Not and not just the media side, but I mean, it's all interconnected. And the news today, as we record this on Monday afternoon, um, was that she's offering to re- repay the hundred and thirty thousand yeah. dollars to free her to talk about it. Because, you know, when presumably, again, it's a free speech issue. She wants to do a good turn for America and the world. But also, she's probably realized that she can make a lot more than one hundred thirty thousand dollars if she, you know, writes a book about it or, you know, has a TV show, a TV appearances, or, or just that the GoFundMe would instantly, you know, give her back the money. Yeah, of right? course. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there'd be no problem. That, That's the thing. Thirty thousand dollars seems like nothing for what she was, you know, agreeing agreeing to stay mum about. Yeah, but that was back when it was still candidate Trump, right? He wasn't going to win the election, and then imagine if he lost. Like this would be the most worthless story. Yeah, you know, like who 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 cares? Right? It's true. I mean, it's funny, like she's had a couple of moments too. Hadass Gold's CNN.com piece, which I referenced earlier, ends like this. Asked if she had a message for the president, Daniels put her hands on her hips, cocked her head, pursed her lips and smiled. End quote. So mysterious, right? And a few weeks back, there was Clifford's sort of Stephanie Clifford, her real name, excuse me, coy non-answers with Jimmy Kimmel when she was on that show. Mm -hmm. Did you sign this letter that was released today? I don't know, did I? Wait a minute, that you can but say, right? That does right? not look like my signature, does it? It doesn't look like your signature. So you're saying perhaps this letter was written and released without your approval. Hmm. <laughs> do you know where it came from? Do you have any idea? I do not know where it you came from. You do not know where it came from. So you, you, you I deny- came from the internet. So you did not Same. have anything to do with this letter. I also work for the FBI and I'm a man, according to the internet today. Is that right? <laughs> yes. 
Well, that was the Kimmel appearance was the real sort of, I don't know if icebreaker is the right term, but that was the first time where, it, I mean, it was sort of shocking because it wasn't, you realized it wasn't just going to be printed innuendo uh, or people reporting second and third hand based on sources. Uh, this, this was actually going to be her going out in front of the camera and doing this sort of, you know, shrug shoulders emoji to the whole world <laughs> or just there with a little coy smile and and letting the story, come, you know, catch fire. Yeah. And and who knew that that would be so beguiling to do the shrug shoulders emoji <laughs> on camera. Also, speaking of which, in that same genre, Anderson Cooper has interviewed her for a 60 minute segment, mm-hmm. which hasn't aired. Mm-hmm. But Avenatti took a picture of the three of them. Like, I guess, at the site of the interview right. and tweeted it out. And now, you know, BuzzFeed's like, oh, is Trump going to try to seek an injunction or Cohen seek an injunction to prevent this segment from airing? Which nobody thinks has much of a legal prayer of working. No. But that's also the shrug shoulders. Much like, look at this. Yeah. More to, more. And she may she may not have said anything to Anderson Cooper. Well, well, it's just a great. She may have told him everything or she may have told him nothing. We have no idea. Yeah. I mean, it's a, the great. I mean, the gambit at the heart of all this is that there's really nothing that Trump or Cohen or whatever the, the, the Trump camp. <laughs> broadly defined yeah, can it. do because do because doing anything would would implicitly admit that that an affair had taken place. Oh, absolutely. So I mean it's they don't know anything and or knowing that there was a payment being arranged for this woman, right? Yeah. They don't their their stance has to be we don't know anything about this. It's it's amazing. I mean I, I think that there's there's probably another you know layer to all this that we'll never fully understand and whether it's a why this particular scandal seems to have unsettled uh, the Trump camp to the degree that it has. Maybe it's because there's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, you know, maybe it's just because it's a deeply personal thing in a way that a lot of these other things were. You know, the the Access Hollywood tape, you know, was not a specific instance of adultery. And so maybe that's something that, that Trump and his wife, you know, that, 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 would, that would affect them to their core. Uh, as it would many uh, most other human beings, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's very interesting to see the way that it's that that this is reacting, and that also walks us up to a, my second question here, which is what kind of scandal is Stormy Daniels, which is interesting to me. Oh. I mean, to me, on one hand, it's very it's actually a simple scandal, right? It, it's a sex scandal, right? It proves that a politician who is capable of many abnormal scandals is also capable of normal scandals. Mm-hmm. This is the oldest political scandal in the book is. Something happened romantically, and then I try to cover it up. Yeah, like this is just like this is this is this is conventional. This is the, yes, this is the well, 1998 Bill Clinton playbook being pulled out it, of the drawer. Right? Exactly, and the, w- one of the most interesting things to me is when you flip on the talking heads on cable news, the Trump supporters, you know, and none of them are any more eager to support him in this, you know, in this instance than they were about gun control or anything <laughs> like that. But but they have an easier job. They're prepared, like you said, they have the Bill Clinton playbook. You know, I mean, they're all like. There, there are people out there that are just like, well, you know, JFK had had uh, orgies in the White House. That was the famous one. Like <laughs> yeah, Trump, right. whatever. I mean, you know, comparing him to the past, it's this is actually an easy defense in the talking head world. But it's a much more for some for whatever reason, it's it seems to be a much more difficult defense in the real world of the Trump White House. Totally, which is really weird. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's too. It's like you know the Russia scandal, right? Even if the maximalist theory of Trump guilt in the Russia scandal turns out to be true, mm-hmm. it's not going to be as simple as, you know, Trump and Putin shook hands at Mar-a-Lago and said, let's th- let's throw this thing, baby. You know, <laughs> yeah. let's throw this election. It, it's going to be incredibly complicated with all these go-betweens yeah. and, you know, messages and, and winks and, and everything else. Right. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is pretty simple. Yeah. It's pretty simple. You know, and I, I think that's part. I think also, too, just, you know, part of the Trump, the thing about Trump is all these hangers on who have been 
absorbed into government yeah. or at least absorbed into his orbit. So we talked about Sam Nunberg, so many people leaving the White House. Rachel Maddow has to have that big list you mm-hmm. know, on the, on the screen. But so Michael Cohen becoming a figure in that. Yeah. right? And we see like the Trump flunky, you know, so that in a way it's a flunky scandal too, right? Yeah. People doing things allegedly on my behalf or, yeah. um, you know, as Cohen insists, not on his behalf. That I think illustrates something about the scandal as well. Sure. I mean, and there's also the sort of like inherent incompetence of like if you couldn't handle if you couldn't handle one hush agreement, then you know, like what does that say? <laughs> Are you really gonna be able to, to negotiate with the North Koreans? Yeah. If you couldn't handle I think the hush but I think agreement? that there is a I think there is a probably a, a thematic correlation to the Russian scandal too, because the further that it goes, the Russia whatever investigation, the further that the Mueller investigation goes, you know, there are more people that are that are kind of uh, brought into the net. Um you know, it makes for good daily news when, mm-hmm. when you can just be like, oh, here's Sam Nunberg, whatever. I mean, just the people just get lined up, you know, for all, all these former Trump associates are being brought in day by day. But the accumulation of it is much becomes more and more complicated. Right. So now this the, the Russia scandal, as you rightly said, is going to be this incredibly complex web of what I mean, what even even if it's a even if it's a nothing burger and even if it's a, you know, country altering situation it's going to be really complicated what we have here is the simplest of scandals and it's so much it's it's just so much easier to tell this story and i think that's part of why it's so appealing and so damning to to uh you know allegedly to president trump if we had to take bets on the russia scandal i think i would short nothing burger and bet heavily on john le carre novel (laughs) as the eventual outcome of that all right david it's now time for our overworked twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media twitter Made it at exactly the same time. <laughs> All right. Now, before we get to that, can I take us on a slight detour, detour excuse me, to the overworked late night joke of the week? Oh, please week. do. So last week we learned that Trump had not signed this so-called hush agreement yeah. with Stormy Daniels slash Stephanie Clifford um, via the New York Times' Sopan Deb and New York Magazine's Jesse David Fox. We learned that when that news came out that every single late night comedian just about every single late night comedian made the same joke that night. <laughs> the same joke. Let's hear a little bit of it. In other Trump news, adult film star Stormy Daniels is back. And this time she's suing Trump, claiming that a 2016 hush agreement preventing her from discussing their affair is invalid because, get this, Trump never signed it. This is amazing, mostly because it's the first time Trump has ever not put his name on something. How incompetent are you if you didn't sign your own NDA? The same guy who slaps his name on everything. Buildings, vodka, the least sexy Twilight vampire. (laughs) Everything! Now Daniels is suing Donald Trump over the confidentiality agreement, alleging that it is invalid because while both she and Trump's attorney signed it, Trump himself never did. So this is the thing Trump thought was too sketchy to put his name on. <laughs> what about Trump University or, or Don Jr.? Isn't that amazing? That's it's incredible. just incredible. Like every, and again, it's, there's nothing sinister about it. It's just, like our, it's just like our Twitter thing every week. Everybody just came up with just like we, all, the mind, all the great comedy minds in America went to the same place. 
Uh, I miss the days when some somebody would just get mad on Twitter because they say that like Conan stole one of their jokes that they submitted to him or that they tweeted <laughs> right. earlier. Yeah, send it, they sent it to e- email the info at conanobrien.org <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. How yeah. dare you use my joke? Yeah. yeah. It turns out that everybody's got the same jokes. It kind of it kind of kind of proved that, right? Yeah. There is no such thing. All right, David, now back to uh Twitter. You'll remember our overworked Twitter joke of the week a few weeks ago where everyone, including the aforementioned Conan O'Brien, was saying they got traded to the Cavs when that thing was going on. Yes. Taylor Pryson in the news that that overworked Twitter joke got a gritty reboot this week. After Friday's flurry of trades involving Jarvis Landry and Tyra Taylor, everyone is now joking that they got traded to the Browns. Yes. So we all go here, right? Yeah. There's a flurry of trades. Your Twitter go-to is I also got traded to that team. Yes. Me, sports writer, media member, whoever you are. But this week's runaway winner via the college and pro football writer Alex Dunlop. Last week, the well-muscled NFL referee Ed Hockley <laughs> announced his retirement, after which everyone in the universe tweeted, with Ed Hockley retiring, they finally succeeded in taking our guns away. <laughs> <laughs> Actually funny. That's really good. I oh my gosh, I don't know how I missed that. And the and the and the great combo, right, is, is really, really <laughs> live wire political issue combined with funny sports thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're still we're talking about gun control in America, but you could combine that with Ed Hockley. Except it's not just a little bit of peanut butter, a little bit of jelly. It's a it's a delicious it's a delicious sandwich. <laughs> it like puts it all together just right. Yeah, I think you're looking for that old Reese's commercial, right? Chocolate in my peanut oh, butter. No, is that I'm what hungry. you're talking about? Yes, all right. right. All right, Dave, before we talk about Farhad Manju and unplugging from Twitter as a news source, let's take a quick break. Hey, friends, it's Robert Mays from the Ringer NFL Show. With all of the NFL news that's happened over the past few days, we will be recording our show tomorrow afternoon, reacting to the latest trades and news, plus a little bit more previewing of free agency. On Wednesday, Mike Lombardi and Tate Frazier will be reacting to the start of free agency on GM Street. And on Thursday... I will be out of here, so Kevin Clark and Danny Kelly will be breaking down the transactions we've seen so far, and Danny will be ranking the available quarterbacks from the draft and free agency. So look out for that and more, and please subscribe to the Ringer NFL Show podcast feed on the Ringer Podcast Network. All right, for our second topic, David, on March 7th, New York Times columnist Farhad Manju claimed he'd unplugged from the digital news noise machine, trading in Twitter and social media for print newspapers and The Economist. As Manju wrote, I was trying to slow jam the news, and Mm -hmm. it seemed to work. He continued, in two months, I managed to read half a dozen books, took up pottery, it's kind of funny, and I think became a more attentive husband and father. Well, last week along came Dan Mitchell in the Columbia Journalism Review, who noted that despite his Twitter news cleanse, Manju, quote, tweeted nearly every day during the 58 days of the experiment, And during the first two weeks of February, he tweeted on average more than 15 times a day, (laughs) close quote. So once again, let's think of this on two levels. The idea of unplugging generally and this relatively, I think we would agree, smallish scandal, if that's actually the right word for it. But let's start with there. What did you make of the actual particulars of the case? Okay, when I first saw his piece come out, I had that little spider sense go off. Like, I'm pretty sure that I saw him tweet within the past bit, but maybe I just didn't know the parameters of his dates right. Right. And then when I saw the Dan Mitchell piece pop up, I, I honestly assumed that I that they were going to expose Manju's fake Twitter or like secret Twitter account. Because <laughs> you had all kinds of other scandals well, I, in I don't, mind. Be, just because, first of all, it, did, it, it does come at it from a very conspiratorial angle, right? I mean, but... The fact that it was just his own Twitter account and he was just, you know, tweeting on a regular basis 
where he knew he was going to be print, you know, going to have this column coming out saying I'm offline. It just seems it beggars belief almost. I mean, I, I don't know if I saw this, if this was a tweet or something that someone put in Slack or some, something that someone wrote. But if you're going to do stunt journalism, the first rule is you have to go through with the stunt. You have to do the stunt. Right? That's, that's exactly what I think. I just think, what's the point? Yeah. What's actually the, even the point for yourself if you don't do the stunt? Right. You know, somebody said, well, maybe he should have written a column that said, I tried to do this. And this was as close as I could get to forsaking all you know, digital to, to forsaking social media and Twitter was mm-hmm. to tweet 15 times a day. Yeah. And, you know, maybe write the column about how you could not quit. And it should be said that he wasn't just, uh, there's certainly a case for him to say, you know, my Twitter presence is, is, you know, part of my job. And so I just like, yeah. I tweeted into, I <laughs> tweeted into the abyss, you know, with, I read the newspapers, but then I tweeted, but there were instances that they brought up of him directly responding to other tweets him saying there was a there was a you whole tweet this thread, yeah, yeah. thread about Trump and he's like you have to read this I mean there like the, it was undeniable that he was engaged a lot more than than he would let on yeah I mean first of all I just don't know how a technology columnist from the Times could just go basically two months without reading Twitter I just don't I don't or you know using Twitter as a news source like oh. I just don't think it would be humanly have to be a you vacation your, would you wait for like Wired to come in to get your news about technology like how would he how would he just do his job and keep up with his job? I have speaking? no, I have no. You idea. and I could not do that. Were you going to wait for the wrestling dirt sheets to arrive in the mail <laughs> to get your news for your column? I used to think like reading his column, I actually wanted if he had done that experiment or in, in whatever way he had done it, I would have actually wanted that to be longer. Yeah. Because I think in a way it's easy to see. It's easy to say, I read a newspaper and I felt good about myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. But it's much harder to say, here are all the awesome things I read in my print edition of the New York Times. And then here, which an assistant or friend or whomever compiled from me, are all the things I missed on Twitter that day. Yeah. And actually seeing the comparison, because some of the things would be like just ludicrous and dumb. Yeah. Right. Like an argument between two people like that. OK, I could have just missed that of my life. Right. That was a waste of time. But there are some some a lot of things that you would have missed. Yeah. Well, you and I have talked about this off, you know, offline, off the show. Um that that the you know the the one of the most important jobs of a newspaper for since the inception of newspapers was waiting stories right what when, what goes above the fold on the front page what goes in you know what what's on page 12 what's you know like they are uh, I mean, they, they funnel us our news in a very deliberate way. And that's why you used to have stories about how did this, why was this story only on page A15 of the Times? And then it, it, it steadily made its way to the front page. And in the social media era, those decisions are made by by likes and retweets, right? Yes. The things that, fu- that that end up being funneled onto your homepage or into your brain are things that the rest of the world has approved of and and encouraged <laughs> you to read. So you're right. There are there would be incredible that that's a really interesting thought uh, thought experiment, right? What are the things that I learned because I was reading the newspaper that was not getting retweeted? You know mm-hmm. that were that were not getting uh you know upvoted on Facebook and and put into my you know and 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 so they were right in front of my face. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 do at the end of the day. Maybe I'm a better person for reading all those things, mm-hmm. but am I better at what I'm supposed to be doing every day? I mean, that's to me the challenge, right? We all say, well, we, we read these, we read Twitter, we read all our friends and all this stuff. And it's this news that's very like tailored to what we're already interested in. Mm-hmm. But there's also a certain value to that. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you just only have so much time in the day. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's there's a constant. I mean, look, we all said this in our jobs, right? There's a tension between being a better person, a better, more well-rounded, well-read yeah. person and being a more effective employee a lot mm-hmm. of the time. 
those things usually don't go together sure. unless you're like a Jeopardy champion or something like that. Right? Like what, what what would it possibly be? Yeah, and I mean the one place uh, to uh, take this a little bit different direction, the one place where those two things do meet is reading the work of your friends and coworkers <laughs> in the journalistic yes. world, where you there is a, there is a certain like just like you know, obligation, emotional obligation to be able to compliment somebody honestly on something they, they've written. Sure. Uh, but that's not necessarily the most important thing you might want to read that day. The other interesting misconception I think about unplugging is that the world we live in online is chaotic. There's too much news. Mm. We're being flattened by the news. Yeah. You know where else there's too much news? In the newspaper. <laughs> Can you just, I'm going to, I was going to get my, I have a physical news. Oh, wait. Brian is, Brian is presently walking across the studio to pull a newspaper out of a backpack. I want you to, this is the New York Times. I was reading this morning. Is this, this is, today's Times? Yeah. All right. We think I read like four day old papers. I don't know if you just got the Sunday subscription, the weekender, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I read this, I opened this today, and you know what the first article, look, look, look at this for just a second. I, I know people on the podcast are appreciating this. Look at this. Look at, look, look at how much news is in this. Yeah, he's flipping the debate. I mean, this is this is more this more is, prose than you read in This is international. China's legislature formally ends term limits. Okay. Formally, excuse me. Fish instead of flaming hot Cheetos and feeling lost. A dispatch from Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Wow. I mean, you, you talk about news. And it's like in Britain, letters call for a quote punish a Muslim day. The Mideast plan is nearly ready. Will either side read it? And on and on and on. That's just the international page of the Times. Yeah. The other thing he wrote in this thing is said, I spent 40 minutes reading the paper. 40 minutes. And I'm not talking about reading every word. Even flipping the pages and reading what catches your eye. I don't think you'd read the Times in 40 minutes. No. There's tons of news everywhere. Yeah. So really you're just picking one kind of news over the other, which he talks about. Mm -hmm. But I think you're also like, I just think like you're going to be, if, you, if you're, if you want to, you're going to be swimming in news no matter where you are. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, and in some ways, in some ways for me, it's easier. I mean, it's easier to log off. I understand the pressure of the, you know, the internet age. I am deeply uh, embedded in it. But for me, at least, it's easier to turn, to close my laptop uh, and, and, and leave that behind than it is to deal with the, the light emotional to toll of like the stack of New Yorker magazines <laughs> on my coffee table. Isn't that everybody's proof <laughs> and newspapers, that even yeah. when you pick old media that you still don't actually read it? Yeah, it is course. the unread New Yorker. Of course. It's absolutely true. It's also like there was also this piece in the Times this week about this guy, Eric Hagerman. I'm glad you brought this up. So, That's right. Great. And at the dawn of Trump, he just, at the administration, he decides, I don't want to know. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to even in a cafe. I'm going to listen to white noise on my headphones while I listen to my when I drink my coffee just because I don't want somebody saying something out loud that's happened. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to know anything. Yeah. And he watches Cavs games with the sound off. I think that was my favorite. That's detail. so great. <laughs> so concerned that he would get a little bit of current events uh, from, you know, Reggie Miller or whoever that he just wouldn't <laughs> even turn the sound on during Cavs games. Yeah. But that's like, that's to me, I mean, he's doing it for a very particular, very arcane purpose in his case, right? I just don't want to, I don't want to know anything that happens. Yeah. I don't want to know the results of the day's news. Um, but, you know, with normal people, and I think journalists, there's this real romance for old media, right, that runs very strong. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. It's like when you see the tweet all the time, like a big sporting event happens and everybody tweets the front page of the sports page. Like, look at this. Magnificent. And it's yeah. just a picture and a bad headline yeah. half the time. Oh, wow. Look at this. Well, it's not really good. Online is whatever the golden age of news is, is happening online yeah. right now. Like that, that's the best. Uh -huh. It's amazing. And by the way, I also think I'd love to do this experiment. Instead of doing the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and San Francisco Chronicles, try it with Forward Star Telegram. 
Just that's all you get every day. <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong with the Forward Star Telegram, my beloved hometown paper. But Love that's it. it. Yeah. Right? You could get through that in 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you could. But it's like, that's all your news. Yeah. What if somebody had to, who was, you know, living somewhere else and also didn't have six, seven hundred dollars a year to spend on the print times, which it costs to get every day at home, you know, chose that. Like that's yeah. the affordable option. You wouldn't quite get the news. You know, you wouldn't get what you want. I thought, I mean, just to, before we get away from the subject, the, the piece about Eric Hagerman uh, by Sam Dolnick in The New York Times was incredibly compelling. And it didn't really, the, my only complaint with it, you know, as a, as a written exercise is that it didn't really have much of an ending. He had this weird, this weird utopia planned out. And, yeah, and with then the it, lake. Yeah, the lake. but I think that that's part of, you know, in, in some ways there's a, this illustrates a difference between stunt journalism and, you know, finding the great story itself in real life. Um, it's not quite as neat, you know, when you, when you find this, the, when you find a subject like Hagerman, um, but it, but there's parts of it that are just so, I mean, the, but the, 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 the emotion and the turns is so much greater. Just hearing about how he walked in the coffee shops with noise, with like white noise. Yeah, that was amazing. That headphones. part was amazing. I mean, weirdly, the part that got me was it turned out he was like a former Nike executive or something like that. Yeah. Which not, that was not what I was expecting. The entire way up to that point, I was just like, oh, this is just a guy who lives off the grid or something. You know, one of my, one, one of my old bosses on Twitter was like, oh, my friend Eric Hagerman has chosen a really different path with his life. I was like, wait, you know this guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not a, like a survival. It's a fantastic thing. story. It was amazing. And it was also like, and also that we would go to go visit a friend in San Francisco. I think it was San Francisco. Yeah. It would make all these arrangements so that the friend would have the TV <laughs> I was pushing on. a little bit too far. Yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if, if I just turn off the internet and the television. That would be a fantastic excuse if someone was coming to visit me to be like, you know what? Let me get you a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> I think my final note on Manju's thing is that he talked about so basically his 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 consumption news came down to trying to read the newspaper every the print newspaper every day yeah and relying on certain things and tweeting for him a minimal amount of time let's say light engagement with Twitter sure fair fair enough I think that's my I think that's my my news diet now yeah like and I don't claim to read every page or even half the pages of newspapers every day they come home they stack up I don't get through them but I, that's what I kind of try to do. And I, so I feel like I like I like this idea, you know, yeah. but I also feel like by doing that, I'm often also really behind and, you know, and then I give it up because I'm like, I can't, I just can't survive I, like this. I honestly hadn't even thought about that till you said it, but you're right. What he accomplished was living out my media consumption life, <laughs> which is sort of your utopia, your lake. My, well, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if that's Ohio it. I don't, I don't consider, I don't consider this utopia, but it is just another one of those moments where you're like, how old must I be if someone's version of uh, reverting to the stone age is just what I do every day? <laughs> yeah. Someone's news cleanse was your daily life. All right, David, Michael Smith, Michael to most of America had his last day on the 6 PM sports center on Friday. Credit, credit to Richard Deitch. With breaking that story, Jamel Hill, his TV partner, whom he rebooted the show with last February, had already left. So let's start this discussion of ESPN nostalgia by reminding everyone of how I think Michael and Jamel called this, right? So when I interviewed them last summer, they told me one of the things we tried to do, first thing when we got the job was said, go to executives and say, let's not call this Sports Center. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because if we do a totally different version of the show and play on the chemistry we had on his and hers mm -hmm. and, and try to reinvent it. Everyone's going to get mad because it's not sports center, not the right. sports center that's been going on for nearly four decades Yeah, that they know. Yeah. Right. That they're not watching, but yeah. anyway, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. By the way, another good point. But anyway, they said like, let's call it sports center presents his and hers. Let's just call it anything else. Uh -huh. ESPN was very invested in sports center. 
they knew there was a nostalgia problem coming, right? Mm -hmm. We can say a lot of things about why the show failed. We can say didn't work, you know, basic versions of it didn't work. I can get into that in a second too, but um, we can say racism and other weird, you know, political stuff, Trump, whatever you want to say. But like part of it, I think is ESPN because it was so good and because it was so dominant for so long, I'm not saying it's not good anymore, Yeah. but because it was so dominant for so long, it, it has, it gets clobbered by its own nostalgia. Yeah. As much as any media pop culture institution that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, Saturday night live is the other thing that always yeah. comes to mind okay. when I think okay, about that's this. That's number one. Only yeah. be, only because I, you know, we hear people talking on, on staff and stuff talking about SNL all the time and it's a, uh, you know, but there's just this kind of like feeling that there are these glory days that may or may not have ever existed. You know, no one no one here remembers what I mean, there was no Twitter to chronicle people, you know, talking shit about Bill Murray back in the day. But I'm sure they would have <laughs> if Twitter would have existed, you know. Yeah. And I also think the ESPN people had a longer run. I mean, there was still there were guys like Boomer going. Oh, yeah. As long as he did was like the equivalent of Belushi having lived and stayed for three and a half decades. Well, and the number of hours of SportsCenter with or without, you know, the original cast has just, you know, institutionalized it in such a different way. Yeah. But it's just I mean, I think it's funny, like, as you said, SportsCenter in its original incarnation, here are the scores and highlights mm-hmm. doesn't work anymore. Yeah. ESPN executives will tell you that. Scott Van Pelt will tell you that. Everybody will tell you that. But it will always be used as a comparison to whatever the newest iteration of SportsCenter is, to yeah. whatever they try to, whenever they try to innovate. And to me, that's that's where you have a nostalgia problem, issue, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. As the, as the uh, media insider here on this podcast, what do you see as the timeline to Michael Smith's separation from SportsCenter? Now, he's he has followed Jamel to the undefeated. Uh, that's a te- that's the at least the announced exit plan strategy. Whatever did his time on SportsCenter come to a close because there's now new management at ESPN? So is it was there an inciting incident that led to this happening, or was it literally over as soon as Jamel Hill left? But they didn't want to make both those announcements at the same time, so they dragged it off until now. My my sense would be that they just the beginning of the end had already happened even before Jamel left, right? And they're just on. They're somewhat separate on, I mean, they're on different timelines. Uh-huh. You know, Jamel's leaving for, at that moment for her reasons. And yeah. She's not going to, they're not going to necessarily hold hands and jump together. Uh-huh. I thank all you guys. I don't want to mistakenly not mention anyone, so I'm just going to mention you as a group. And to you, Mike, thank you so much. This year has been interesting, to say the sure. least. A lot of ups and downs, a lot of highs. Uh, while we won't be doing this show together. Yeah. Certainly, our friendship is not ending. We have to y'all do this. Hey, thank you. We're all proud of you. And as your friend, I'm happy that you're happy. I That's the most important so thing. Thank you. I'm bringing it in for the real thing. Thank you. Appreciate right. you, bro. Y'all still gonna see me on TV? I'll see I'll y'all on Monday talking Super Bowl. You ain't getting rid of both of us. <laughs> I don't think it has much to do with new management. Yeah. Other than that, would have been if they cheat stayed, or you know, if that had kept going on, that would have been part of new management's first thing. Yeah. Um, I think it started when they decided that. The original incarnation of the show, people at ESPN, wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And they decided to try to make it more like just, you know, regular sports center. Yeah. Them, you know, interviewing people and reading highlights. As, as Michael said uh, on uh, Jim Miller's podcast, you know, we, don't, we didn't get to talk very much. Yeah. You know, like we didn't get by play was their whole, the whole point of doing it. Of course. It's funny. To me, it's always, I think of that as just like a failure production. There wasn't a producer who came in who could say, I really like you guys. Yes. I really treasure you. I'm going to figure out how to make this, how to make what you're so good at work within this frame. Yeah. 
Um, when I was there, they were doing a lot of the producing themselves, an incredible amount. I wish I'd made more of a big deal of that when I, when I was there, but it was, it was obvious that they were, you know, producing a lot of the show themselves, mm -hmm. a lot of good people they liked and, and, and worked there and were, they were happy with, but they just were, there was no, there no person came along by the time that person came along, they didn't want, they didn't like Michael and Jamel, right? Yeah. They were trying to take them out of the show, if anything. So do you think this is, I mean, this is obviously not a spe thing so specific to ESPN, right? I mean, if you're talking about the kind of the failure of imagination and production, right? I mean, I remember when, this is probably way longer ago than I like to imagine. I remember when, when Chris Hayes' MSNBC show was starting on a nightly <laughs> basis and he went on this big media tour and he was just like, listen, this isn't going to be your standard talking head show. It's going to be more of a roundtable. I'm going to dig deep on issues. You're not going to see me wearing a tie. And then, you know, two weeks in, he's wearing a tie, camera's <laughs> head on. It's exactly the exact same format as everything else you see on TV. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his, especially his basketball commentary. But, the, but you know, you, it does seem like the, people get a really short leash to try something different, and they're probably not given all the tools that they need to succeed at trying something different. And then if there's any momentary lapse of confidence at all, it's right back to the thing we're comfortable doing, the thing we've been doing forever, and the thing that ostensibly we were trying to get away of, get away from by hiring you. It's tough for networks to break out of these boxes, right? Yeah. Another great example you could say was Stephen Colbert, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to try something different, and then eventually it's like, hey, let's get a producer in that just, you know, is like puts him in a position to, of course, Trump, you know, happens, and he's, you know, because he can sort of go off on Trump. But we're going to make this into a pretty conventional talk show. Yeah. Instead of like Jeb Bush and all these people, we're just going to have some movie stars on here. And you can mm -hmm. also talk about Trump and the monologue. And then we're going to get to the movie stars. Yeah. And who sit on the couch, right? Like, I mean, I think there's just, there's this thing that pulls you toward that. What interests me about ESPN, Bill and I talked about this on his podcast, Jason Gay, a couple weeks ago. Uh -huh. Bill was at the time floating a, I think we were, we were musing out loud about a return of Dan and Keith to the sure. Sixth Sports. And I am advised today that that's not going to happen or very extremely unlikely. That but we going. have seen there have been stories that ESPN and Dan Patrick were talking again about his radio show jumping to ESPN. Yeah. And Keith Olbermann for has all done of, some things. I have done some things on ESPN. PTI did some things on the Super Bowl, some pieces. And people have implied that he is that he is all but employed there, maybe just because he doesn't have another specific thing going on. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Keith Olbermann, and I'm happy Tony invited me here because I have some things I want to get off my chest. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Good evening, and welcome to the end of our careers. Where have I heard that? I think he is willing to do stuff, and they are willing to, you know, to have him do stuff. Like, that's about the level it is. Right. At the moment, as far as I know, anyway. I think it's what's interesting to me about that is like, so you have, so you're getting beaten up by your own nostalgia. Uh -huh. How do you then reclaim that? Because there's all this goodwill toward ESPN over the last 30 plus years, mm -hmm. right? So how do you, one of the challenges for the new management there, for Jimmy Pataro to me is how do you take, how do you turn a nostalgia problem into using nostalgia for your own advantage, right? These is, this is the ESPN, the ESPN you grew up with is still going to be here in parts, right? Yeah. Keith Olbermann's going to pop up on PTI. We said, I, I used this example with Bill the other day, ABC, right? Roseanne is back on ABC. Yeah. It is never going to be 1988 for, for ABC when Roseanne started no. ever again. They're never going to be in that position again. But when this comes on, you're like, oh, yeah, remember that? Yeah. When network tele when network primetime was the stop, was the thing. Yeah, but they can do eight episodes of Roseanne and that nostalgia will carry you that far. Yeah. Right? Right. It's but a lot that's harder like, that's to do. That's the X-Files, right? Sure. That's, you know, it's, that's what everybody's done. That's, and, and a lot of it can be really fantastic work. I think it's a lot harder when you're trying to program a whole network, right? I mean, isn't that the ultimate problem of ESPN that, uh, or, I mean, when, you, when you're talking about what they did with Michael and Jamel uh, and everything else they're working on is that, uh, you know, 
if your business is highlights, we've talked about this, the age of the highlight the, of the, you know, you just said it, the, we've passed this, right? This yes. is, it's a, that, that era is no more. But in a lot of ways, they're just finding new and exciting ways to package the packages, right? True. But if, but if none of those, if you don't have the confidence that any of those are going to break out above, beyond Sports Center, and if none of them can get more popular than a generically labeled Sports Center, then what are you to do? You know, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you move forward? That's a great and question. No one, that's like, what that's what they're trying no to figure out. No one's no one's no one's turning and in, tuning into ESPN specifically for SportsCenter, unless they brought back a month of nostalgia with you know with Keith and Dan. I think you might argue they're turning into midnight because they know the scores and stuff are going to be on. Yeah, you know, SportsCenter, right? Maybe late night. Sure, if you're rolling in. Well, what I'm, but what I'm saying is you're tu- you're tuning in. You're tuning in for if not for the highlights, then for the recaps, right? You're tu- you're tuning yeah. in. You're tuning in for a concept, not for personalities. And if you try to program the network for personalities, uh, then you're sort of at loggerheads with yourself. It, it does beg the question that that you know Michael and Jamel raises: Why does this have to be Sports Center? You know, I mean, if if you're not going to do something that gets more eyes than Sports Center, I mean, that, that if you're not going to you know, bring in something that's better, bigger, different than Sports Center. Then what's sort of what's the point? Yeah, and especially you know, six o'clock was such a weird one, right? Because there are no scores and highlights. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Indians won today. Okay, well, there's like a day baseball game. You know, what are you going to do? Right? Yeah, you know, that's you know, and that, a, that and time it, is trades, woge bombs. Yeah, and right? in the modern media era, you can't even get that up in time in podcast form for people to listen to on the drive home. Like, you know, there's, there's not, <laughs> you, you, there's, it's kind of a no win situation. Yeah. It's a phenomenally weird thing. But to me, it's like, it's funny because no, no, one, no network has come along. Fox, uh, FS1 could have done this. NFL Network, somebody could have said, you know what? You guys are, you know, Chris Berman's kind of sliding away. We're going to hire Chris Berman full time and say, you do NFL highlights for us. Mm-hmm. We'll put him on. Yeah. So we're going to take the, we're going to steal the goodwill and move it to our network. Right. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to put Keith on, you know. The show that's not crazy given the people who've been you know given shows at these networks yeah. right we're gonna we're gonna take your nostalgia mm-hmm. and we're gonna milk it over here yeah. to say hey if you like the old ESPN it's over it exists over on this this channel now yeah no one's done that really you know there's been when Keith went to Fox way way back when or something like that but so ESPN has this opportunity people are still out in the universe it's just if they're willing to do it and if they can find as you say limited quantities places where they can come in and do it. You know, Berman doing and and uh, TJ doing a couple of couple of highlight, you know, runs right around the Super Bowl in the conference championship games. Yeah. You know, it was like that was everybody like, oh, we love this guy. Well you 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 were mad at him like a year ago. But now <laughs> Berman's back like one week. Ah yeah. The of catchphrases are back. Of course. It's awesome. It's ESPN that saddled with the nostalgia problem, yeah. right? But for the rest of the media universe, everything moves so much more quickly that I think Fox stealing Skip Bayless is their version of stealing ESPN nostalgia. Sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's still right. old ESPN. Yeah, right. It's not 1979. It's, you know, 2008. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. The world uh-huh. just moves too quickly, but ESPN's got to, ESPN's the one that has to look in the mirror every Colin day. Colin Coward, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the old ESPN I used to like, you know, before, the, before they changed everything. <laughs> exactly. No, it's true. Um, it's just a funny thing to think about. But I think it's, I think it's one of those things that, look, it's not, it's a subtle thing. It's around the margins, probably. It's not going to, you know, float a ratings period or whatever. But I just think it's one of those persistent things, you know. It's like, every, you know, there's so many reasons people criticize ESPN. Uh-huh. So many of them are just cuckoo. Yeah, but about half of them come back to at some level. Oh, the ESPN—it's not the ESPN I grew up with anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not this. So how can you just remind people that those people are still in your universe, right? In your expanded universe. Yeah, that those personalities—how how do they come and say hello once in a while? You know, how do you how do you give them a show for a while? You know, like like I said, Keith on PTI. You know that kind of stuff. It's like it's just a funny question to think about. Yeah. 
All right, David, that's it for this edition of the Press Box. Thanks to our ace producer, Jim Cunningham. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, that <laughs> I will see you next week for more Hot Media Takes. See you then, buddy. See you later, man. As the, as the uh, media insider here on this podcast? Is this today's times? Yeah. All right. What do you think? I read like four day old papers? I don't know if you just got the Sunday subscription, the weekender, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not using the right cards, you could be missing out on $300 a year in rewards. Luckily, there's Birch, the app that helps you get the most out of your cards by actively tracking their rewards programs and showing you which ones to use before you buy. Download Birch, B-I-R-C-H, in the App Store and sign up for free today.